Russ Hoff, offensive guard and defensive tackle, Humberside Collegiate Institute, home of the Huskies, junior varsity offensive coordinator, Etobicoke Eagles football, offensive coordinator, Western Tech, home of the Colts. And you are listening to At The 55. Hello and welcome to At The 55, your home for OUA football. Today, Dakota and I are joined by a very special guest who has had his hands all over football in the city of Toronto, from the high school level to the summer ball level, all through university. Coach Russ Hoff. Russ, how you doing, sir? Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. Doing well, doing well. It's been a bit of a tough grind with uh, schools starting up in our COVID situation, but we're rolling with the punches, making the best of it and trying to get through it. And, I, you know, I thought of in the introduction sort of going through all the teams that you had been with, whether it was mm-hmm. York and U of T at the, you know, OUA level or with Etobicoke Eagles, Metro, there, you know, so many schools, so many teams. So currently, just so I get my facts straight, it, you're with uh, Western Tech Dakota's alma mater, right? That's right. Um, I'm a teacher in Toronto, of course, and I actually just moved to Western Tech this fall. Um, had spent some time the past few years at Central Tech, uh, but I'm a te- I'm teaching at Western Tech. I'm the department head of student success there. Like school, it's a school wide initiative, and I'm also a assistant department head of special education. And so, part of your history, at least uh, in terms of the high school level, that uh, just I guess we'll get started here because I think this is really interesting to get your perspective on is going back just about or about a decade now when you were with Downsview and uh, I guess founding or refounding, I'm not exactly sure what the, the proper way to describe it, but the, the the team there, what was that process like? And, you know, it led to fairly immediate success at the level you were playing with. I had a couple friends who were on those teams in 2010, 2011. Um, but I just, I've always been curious of what that process was like getting that Downsview team up and rolling back in the, I guess the, the early 2010s or yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I'm a teacher. Um, finished my playing career at U of T in 2003. Um, had a couple years of finishing up school, going to teacher's college. Got hired literally a week after I graduated teacher's college, actually, at Richview Collegiate. So as a football former football player, football coach, walking into like paradise as a high school football coach at Richview Collegiate in Toronto. Um, after a couple years there, Um, as a young teacher in Toronto, you get bounced around quite a bit, a lot of the time, right? So you spend a lot of time being what's called surplus, meaning the school has fewer students than they need staff members, right? And the youngest teachers or least senior teachers are the ones who are bumped. So I was bumped around a number of times. And um, one of my mentors uh, was a vice principal actually at Downsview Secondary at that time. And he reached out and said, hey, you know, there's a program or an initiative being run by the Argos and Tim Hortons. It was called Level the Playing Field. And it granted, uh, I believe it was six programs over three years um, with seed money to start football. Downsview was one of them. So I went to Downsview. You know, it's a school of about 700 students at the time. Um, And we started football. Um, it was pretty amazing. You know, we went out there, we ran uh, 
camp in the spring for incoming grade nine, so grade eight kids. We recruited the hallways predominantly. We busted our butts trying to get kids who were in the building to play football. And, you know, the first year there, we played in tier three in the Toronto District School Board League. We had about 40 kids. And the very first year we went to the, I believe we went, I could be wrong, but I believe we went to the tier three finals and we ended up losing to a better team that had a couple more years experience. And it was uh, Dan Forth tech who was another level, the playing field program team. Um, they beat us. They won tier three that year. And that was 20, I want to say that was 2010, 11. Then we moved up, um, spent three seasons in tier two in Toronto um went to the semis our first year i believe we lost in an overtime game to father henry carr and then we actually won it two years in a row so we beat mm, we get this right we beat north toronto the first year and we beat um yep these guys right here (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, those guys (laughs) we beat malvern the second year and much to the consternation of some of uh the, the programs and the established guys in, in the room, but we did manage to win as, as, you know, initially as an underdog, but then we were pretty, pretty well-respected program. Um, moved up to tier one, spent another four years there as I was, when I taught there, um, we went to the, the semi. So like the final four in tier one, three of those four years, you know, we were, so we went from a team that really, nobody thought could even get on the field at a school that really had from the outside looking in a lot going against it in terms of running programming to being a program that, you know, we beat Northern three out of the four times we played them. Right. And that's a powerhouse Toronto team. You know, we lost to Etobicoke, I believe every year we were in tier one actually. So we ended up, it was just this rivalry that kind of naturally developed and, um, they had our number. They had some real, you know, great ballers at that time, like Justice Allen. They went to Offsa and won it a couple of those years. And we just couldn't get past them. We ended up running into them, I think, two years in a row in the semifinals. And just, you know, hats off to them, right? Great, great program over there. And it was just a little too much for us. But I think we did a lot. We did a lot when we were there. And we uh, had a lot of fun, that's for sure. Now, I want to go back to actually when you talked about, I guess, that maybe transition period when you were Mm -hmm. making your way into tier two. And then I think you said some consternation about sort of, I guess, where you guys should be playing. And as someone who who played uh, my high school football with North Toronto, kind of consummately Mm -hmm. tier two Toronto football team and then went back to coach another year. And I'm sure Dakota has his sense of, of sort of what these conversations are like. I, I, I've just sort of gleaned from over the years. There is a lot of this debate yeah. amongst schools when it comes to Absolutely. where a team should be based on their talent or based on, I, I, I imagine, maybe the, the student body size, I guess, just giving mm-hmm. you a sense of how many schools. Uh, players you can draw from or players playing summer football like I'm curious what those processes are like and what sort of those conversations sound like um because I I I can imagine it gets pretty tense it can yeah I mean really what they sound like depends on who's involved (laughs) but um the the main thing you have to understand and 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 
um, Toronto uh, TSSAA, so the Toronto School Boards Athletic Association, the focus in that uh, association is on participation numbers. The idea is you want kids playing sports uh, as much as possible, right? Just like in any league or in any group. Um, but one of the things to keep in mind in Toronto is our makeup is, is quite different than in a lot of places. Um, a lot of the GT, a lot of the golden horseshoe school boards, you know, um, are made up of schools with kids that come from predominantly, you know, single family homes. They come, a lot of school boards are made up of schools with students that come from a, what you might call a traditional Canadian background. Um, whereas in Toronto, in the GTA, but especially in Toronto, you have a, a lot of schools where the majority of students are first generation Canadians. And a lot of students come from non-traditional family backgrounds, right? So whether that's single parent households, whether that's uh, multi-generational homes, what have you. Um, so a lot of the times with a lot of sports that you might feel are traditionally Canadian, there are a lot of students in Toronto participating in those sports for the first time in the high at the high school level. Um, we don't necessarily see kids who come up through, for example, hockey programs, right? Some schools do, but a lot of schools don't. So you have a school like um, Downsview, right? Where a lot of the students are relatively, they or their family are relatively new to Canada or their cultural background doesn't involve some traditionally, some sports that might be thought of as traditionally Canadian, right? So the focus is on participation and getting more kids involved and exposed to sports so that they can remain active throughout their life. It's not a different focus than anywhere else, really. It's just a little bit different clientele. Um, so what those conversations look like in terms of football is often um, a challenge based around what a coach in his building or her building understands about their student body versus what the perception is of that student body from the outside looking in. So you have a, about, I would say, eight to 10 traditional football schools in Toronto. And then you, in any given year, you have 15 to 20 that are a non-traditional football program where they perhaps are a tier two or tier three program or what's called what they call a developmental program where they're really trying to build their base, right? And all of that hinges on, on the coaches in the building and the players' commitment levels, right? And so nobody in the Toronto League, at, at least, coaches are never told what level to put their teams in at. It's considered to be the coach's choice and their decision. And they should make that based around, you know, there's a couple different checklists, essentially, of, of what kind of team you look like on paper so what you always get is a couple teams that are end up being better than maybe the tier that they're playing in and um maybe not from top to bottom but as you guys well know football you know it's a game of inches right so there are a 21-7 football game can very easily turn into a 35-7 football game and those look a lot different in the box score, right? Even though in the game itself, the difference may only be a couple plays. So you do end up with a lot of challenges based around 
what level your school or what level your school team should play in. You have to look at the players you have. You also have to look at the, you know, the, the expect your expectations of those kids off the field, because there are a lot of kids who you're coaching, not just on the field, but off the field to stay eligible, to stay academically involved, to stay, I don't want to say out of trouble, but to stay out of trouble, right? Stay on the straight and narrow and be able to play every game. And so there's a lot, again, none of this is really any different than any other place. It's just, you know, this is my experience and this is my, you know, what we went through, especially as a place like Downsview, working to make sure the kids had a chance to play every week um, and, you know, working to build our program to the point where we had a core group that we felt we would be safe competing against the best of the best with on the field every day. Well, I can, from my own personal experience, very much connect with that mm-hmm. notion you talked about of teams perhaps playing the wrong division or wrong tier because my high school career was ended with a loss to Sir John and McDonald in 2011. Uh-oh. And we constantly were saying that they were, you know, should have been a tier one team. But I've I've long let that go despite what, uh, what I'm currently saying. But I want to go back to you mentioning yeah. uh, about the idea of building a base. Mm-hmm. And Dakota, I'd love to get you to uh, your input on this as someone who's been coaching uh, in recent years as well. Because it seems like from the, 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 the small bit of experience I've had coaching in, in the last five years or so that schools and some of those more prominent schools that, you know, you, you kind of alluded to, like the Northerns, the Central Techs, mm-hmm. um, Richviews, the sort of traditional powerhouse schools in Toronto are even schools like that are losing this are losing numbers with football. And yes. I don't know if that's a product of the discussion around concussions that's been happening so much more prominently over the past decade or it, it, whatever other types of influences but it just seems like you know in north toronto we always had low numbers but that never surprised anyone what surprised me was when i was hearing that northern had low numbers that central tech had low numbers schools that i always just held in the most adoration as powerhouse toronto football schools um I mean, I'm sure it's multifaceted, but what types of things would you sort of chalk that up to? Or what do you see? What do the both of you see as coaches in the city? Dakota? I mean, I, I would love to comment, but I only coach, uh, you know, I don't coach high school too much. And when I did, it was just that one year and I was blessed to receive that Justice Allen that mopped the floor with, with uh, Russ's team there. Yeah, um, but from what from what I'm seeing when I when I talk to my players, um, I, in rest, correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like kids jump school a lot more than they, than when back when Zach and I were playing. Yeah, they're they're looking to actually go and play ball a lot of times with their friends. Um, and I mean, I don't know what happened. I mean, Lawrence Park, I feel like was a good school back when I was playing, and I don't. I mean, they made it to the finals, but when I was coaching, but they just didn't seem like that powerhouse that they used to be so i mean I'll, I'll share my experience of the past few years and for what it's worth right so i left downs you in 2000 at the end of 2017 i took a job at central tech as a the one of the department heads of special education um i made the move more based around my my own academic i need to get some more experience in my career more than anything um and I felt that would be a good fit. That was a traditional school, amazing facilities, phenomenal facilities, great people, great kids. Um, but, um, you know, I spent three years there and I've moved back a little bit closer to home. 
Um, what I saw and what I've seen in the past little while and what I'm seeing in my new school is kids are a lot more worldly than we often give them credit for. And I say kids, I mean, you know, teenagers, high school kids. Um, they're very focused on what they want to do these days. Um, there's not as many kids that I've seen, especially in the to what you might call downtown schools that I've been at the past four years um, who aren't really sure what they want when they come in in grade nine or when they, you know, you meet them in grade 10 or what have you. Um, they're very motivated in their own particular way and in their own particular fashion. And the trick, especially with a team sport like football, you know, traditionally, and, and Zach, I know you're an, you're an old lineman guy, and so am I. And so, like, traditionally as a, as a lineman, you, you know, you have to grow into the position a little, right? You're like a bigger kid when you walk into high school. You get put on the line and you get told, you know, take your lumps and eventually you'll get to play. And, you know, usually by the end of it, if you stick with it, you're pretty good at the level you're at, you know, and you can have some success kids aren't patient as much as they used to be. It's hard for kids to stick with things. And a lot of people chalk that up to this like instant gratification. And there is probably a part of that there. But I also think that it's the kids are determined and motivated to see results quicker. And so, yeah, you know, again, that kind of is instant gratification, right? But at the same time, as a coach, you've got to be able to show them that progress. It's just like if you're teaching. If you're teaching a kid the multiplication tables and you tell them, stick with it, you're going to get a zero on every test for the next year, but in five years you'll pass, the kid's going to probably give up before you do, right? But if you're able to show the student some progressive success, and some growth and development that he can, he or she can concretely see, you have a better chance of keeping them. And one of the things I think, uh, you know, just you mentioned it, like Northern is traditionally a school with almost 2,000 students, traditionally well over 100 students in their football program. They had a few years where they were a little low. And I remember their coach mentioning that a number of times, especially at the senior level but they did have a ton of junior kids for the most part. Right. And we saw the past couple years with Northern where they've had great, uh, you know, sort of a renewed success on the field. Again, those juniors that saw some success and saw some growth and development in that junior program have now moved up to senior. And so it's easy to say it's cyclical. It's easy to say that, you know, the team's winning and so more kids want to be involved. And those are all important factors but I think the biggest thing is learning to adapt and, and engage with kids that are a little different than they used to be and being adaptable as a coach or a program runner, right? Um, traditionally, the younger the coach, the easier it is for them to engage with the kids. But I think you're seeing some more experienced coaches who are learning to adapt and learning to get those, you know, what are we even calling them these days? Post-millennials on board gen i or something gen i there you go but you know and and so it is cyclical um and uh, you know what a hundred percent of it depends on the coaches in the building and the school culture and if you have strong people involved with the program and you have people that are good at teachers and you have people that are positive and you have people that build a positive energy in the school 
you're going to build a program that has success. Um, you know, at Downsview, I was blessed, man. I got there. Trevel Pinto showed up to our spring camp, about a five foot six, 87 pound grade eight, right? <laughs> you know, Trevel went, played Etobicoke Eagles, Pee Wee. He couldn't even get on the field, man. He, you know, he'll be Whoa. on one of these podcasts with you guys one day. I remember sitting with Travell, Travell's older brother, in this video booth at Centennial Stadium, and I'm filming the game, and they finally put Travell in at quarterback, and this he just marched them down the field, and I was sitting up there, and I was going, I was hit, hitting his his brother was in like grade ten or eleven at the time. I'm hitting him in the arm. I'm saying, like Nathaniel, look at that, like your brother's got it, man. And you know, Travell came to Downsview, grade nine. Put him at quarterback, left him there for four years. I taught him everything I could possibly think of as a quarterback. Um, he he he's by far the best athlete I ever coached. Um, and he just took all whatever I could give him. He added his own, you know, God given ability, and the sky was the limit for that kid. And the rest is history, right? You know, and if sometimes you get a kid like that doesn't matter your program that's going to draw more kids into it right because they want to be around that and that that was a big part of our success to downs you now talking about you know uh, that's a blessed situation talk about a situation that may not be so blessed in possibly the one you're in now where you're going <laughs> to a new school uh who hasn't seen a lot of su- success and i know that firsthand uh in football <laughs> Uh, at least in recent history, um, mixed in with COVID. Uh, I mean, what, what, what's that situation like, man? Look, I, I am, um, it's not, it's not a, it's not a secret, but it's kind of a secret. So I actually was a coach at Western tech way back. I think before Dakota's time, even, um, I, that was the first place I ever coached. So, I stopped, I stopped playing at U of T in 2003 and I started coaching at Western tech in the fall of 2004. Um, when I was in high school, there was a coach there named Mitch, Mitch Chavallo, um, George Chavallo, the boxer's son. And, um, I used to train with Mitch. Uh, I used to go and lift at the gym down the street and he was a teacher at Western tech. And so myself and a number of Western tech guys who ended up going and playing in the OUA as well, we all would go down to the school all summer and we would train. And so, you know, that made me uh, really like that school. I went and I coached there. Uh, We won a tier two championship. That's like, you know, I've got a bunch of those tier two championships. Uh, It was, I think 2004. Um, And then I actually student taught there the next year when I was in teacher's college, um, which was a tremendous experience for me. And so, you know, going back there is, a, it really is a blessing. Like I was, I was so happy when the principal called me and let me know he was offering me the position. I'm really excited. It's a tremendous school. It's a beautiful facility. It's well-rounded campus. Like the faculty is amazing. They produce wonderful people like Dakota himself. Um, and there's just so many programs there to offer for students um, of, of all interests. And in terms of football, man, the football comes easy at a place like that. Um, my One of my mentors was Al Craigie. He's the old head coach at Richview. And I went to Richview, and back then, Richview was the only school running like a spread, almost like an air raid type offense. And that was in like the early 2000s. Um, 
And they'd been doing that for several years. They were one of the only schools that really liked to throw the ball around in Toronto. And I remember asking Al, I said, you know, hey, tell me, tell me how you built this or why you built this this way. And, you know, I was, a, I was a summer league coach with the Tomco at the time. And we had, we had Matt Henry as our running back back then who, you know, Matt Henry was all world, <clears throat> all world, everything. Right. And, and Al said, you know, you coach that team and they have, you have Matt Henry. And I said, yep. He said, I've never had a Matt Henry. I've been coaching for 35 years. And I said, yeah, but you know, you had a Tom Flaxman. That's pretty good. And he said, yeah, you know, Tom Flaxman's amazing, but we only had one of them. Right. We didn't have a, a, a slew of athletes at this place. And so Al's philosophy about football was what can we do that will enable us to overcome or to match teams if we don't have the athletes to hang with them? And you got to remember back then, Richview was competing in the old Metro Bowl format. So to get to the Metro Bowl, we had to, be, we had to win Toronto. Then we had to play the winners of the other leagues. So you're looking at Pickering High, you're looking at Donald A. Wilson, you're looking at St. Mike's, UCC, Huron Heights. Um, my year, my first year at Richview, we, we won Toronto, we, went, we played St. Mike's, and St. Mike's had about 16 CIS players on that team. Their running back was Eddie Houghton, who ended up in, in I think, D2. Uh, Zach, I don't know if you played with Eddie uh, at Metro back then, but no, I don't think so. <clears throat> okay, so Eddie was like a stud, right? Um, we just couldn't hang, but Al's whole thing was just like a lot of the NCAA coaches now have have come up with the theory. You know, if you don't have the athletes to compete, you can compete based on scheme. You can compete based on system. You can you can um, increase the variance in your offense and defensive scheme, giving you a chance to compete with the teams with more talent, right? And I think that's still the case. I mean, I think – when I go to a new school like Western Tech, my goal is to get kids that are willing to buy in, kids that are going to work hard, and kids that are going to develop high football IQs. Um, one of the things that downs you that, that made us problematic when we played, we would go, you know, we had good athletes, of course, but one of the problematic things for our opposition was, was not that we had good athletes, is that we ran a spread, and we ran an air raid, and we threw the ball. And when you combine that with great athletes, it's hard to stop, right? So as I said, like earlier, when you're playing a team that's explosive, just like we're seeing in the NFL with like Kansas City and stuff, a game can get out of hand real quick because your base play might be, you know, a fullback dive if you're coaching like a old school double tight end two back offense. But if you're coaching like in a spread and one of your base plays is like a four vertical pass or mesh or something, um, that's a lot more explosive, right? It's not necessarily a three-yard gain in a cloud of dust. Like, it's a 25 or 30-yard pass. And, you know, when you're coaching great athletes and you institute that type of scheme, you have more chance for success, right? Because you're now putting your opposition in tough one-on-one -on -one matchups. But when you're coaching kids that are new to the game or kids that don't have that experience or kids that are learning as well, and you're coaching high-level schemes and you're coaching systems and you're coaching the kids up as opposed to coaching down to the kids you're going to get kids that opportunity to have that great success and be explosive and minimize or reduce the difference between your talent and the talent that's across from you right so you know 
I know I talk a lot, but the point is getting kids, showing kids that, you know, they can be very, very smart when it comes to football, showing them that football can be a lot of fun and showing them that no matter what the game looks like, you, sh- you always have a chance to compete and to win. Kids flock to that, man. Kids love that. And, you know, then it just takes a little bit of energy and a little bit of magic in terms of the kids and you've got yourself a program. And that's what it comes down to. And I imagine that goes back to that theme you mentioned earlier about the progressive success and being able to show Mm -hmm. them that this is, it's a journey, but you're also seeing the steps. You're actually seeing the rewards on that process. It's not just pie in the sky. Um, So I'd love to now transition a bit now towards the the OUA level, um, because this is obviously still a big component of Toronto football Mm -hmm. writ large and as someone who has experience as a player with both York and U of T and as a coach with York and U of T and then of course all your experience in the uh, summer league levels and high school levels Dakota and I have talked so much with a lot of with so many players we've met over doing the the podcast these past uh, almost two years now together where if they were Toronto guys who picked a school like, say, Ottawa or or Mac or wh- wherever they may have wound up, of how come it wasn't Toronto or, or York? And just this the recurring theme where it seems like despite having this massive wealth of talent in their own backyards, these schools seem to have a tough time retaining that local talent. And when you compare that with other regions, you know, from Essex, to the you know Kitchener Waterloo area to Ottawa, it pales in comparison with the ability to recruit in their own backyard. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that is a multifaceted conversation as well. But in whatever way you want to sort of tackle that, what do you see when you look at the way Toronto, uh, U of T, and York uh, recruit uh, um, Toronto high school football players, or what do you think is going on there? Because something seems to be missing. Right. Um, well, it could be. I mean, that's a, that's a garden path question. There's actually. <laughs> Um, look, um, just so, so you guys know, like my experience in, in terms of summer ball, um, led directly into this, right? Cause as you guys know, said, um, I, I was president in Etobicoke of the Eagles for six years. Um, took a little bit of time off, moved over to Metro then Metro. I was a coach or mainly <clears throat> I ended up being the varsity head coach for several years there. Um, and I worked with a number of different programs in terms of like all-star games and all that, right? That led me into, as you, as you mentioned, um, working with U of T all the way back to when Steve Howlett was a head coach and Greg DeLaval was a head coach, um, doing things like their big man camps. Um, I, I spent some time on staff at York. I helped York run a, a Toronto high school all-star game um, several years ago that was, I feel, very successful. Um, the truth is there's great people in every program, right? But the other thing is you being in the, being in Toronto is, is, is a double-edged sword. Um, Zach and I spoke a little bit early about how it's, it's such a unique place. It's a world-class city, but it's still like a city of neighborhoods. Um, that's something I, I, I teach about that in one of my classes. Um, we're a city of neighborhoods, right? Um, I remember being up at Downsview and kids taking kids down to like U of T for camps and they had never been downtown. And I know, you know, at Central Tech, um, talking to kids about going up to camps at like the Hangar up at Downsview or York or whatever. And some of them had never been outside of downtown, right? Um, We're a lot like, I guess, 
not that I know a lot about it, but we're not a lot like New York in that way, right? We have almost boroughs at this point. I know back in the day they were called boroughs. Um, one of the things about the recruiting, first and foremost, now it's 2020. It, it's it's stupid expensive to live in Toronto. Doesn't matter if you live at Young and Bloor, or if you live in Mississauga or Etobicoke or Brampton or Scarborough. Um, rent is killer. And for students, it's not cheap. Um, you know, kids want to experience university. Part of that experience traditionally is living on their own. And it's really hard for kids to do that in Toronto. They might live in residence for a year, but most kids want to live, you know, off campus with their buddies or with friends or what have you. And that's really hard to do when rent, I mean, I don't know what the average is right now, but you know, I think a one bedroom apartment was like 1800 bucks a month if, before COVID hit. Right. So, you know, how do you, how do you sell that to a kid who can go live in Halifax for 600 bucks a month? Right. Um, so that's a big thing. The, the standard of living is very high and also very expensive. And that doesn't matter if you're a student or you're a professional, like the landlord doesn't care what your career is. Right. So that's a challenge. You have to somehow find a way to bridge that. Another challenge is you're competing, like using U of T as an example, you're competing worldwide for students. Um, I was talking to someone at my school, his, his son is at U of T. He's in business school there. He's not, he's not a football player. Um, but he mentioned that his study group, he's the only person from Canada. So that's awesome from an experience standpoint, but that's also means that U of T is getting international student fees from those other students, right? Universities are businesses. They're going to recruit as an institution, the students that are the best and brightest they can find. And in a lot of cases, the students that are international students are also paying more, right? So that helps their bottom line. Um, so that puts you as a football coach in a, in a bit of a tight spot when you're trying to get kids in and you go into admissions with kids who maybe aren't carrying that 97% average and trying to go to business school, right? So you're fighting for different, to get different students in the building, but you're fighting against a, a rising tide of globalization really of education um and then you know you're trying to get local kids but local kids are, are sitting there saying hey my apartment's four times as expensive if i want to live downtown toronto right and they're also saying hey I, maybe i don't want to live at home because you know again the university experience is going away to school so it's hard um you know are there things that i would do differently than than people who work at those places sure does that mean that they would be any more successful? Probably not. Um, I'm a little bit older now, so I'm a little bit less stubborn in that sense. Um, you know, I respect the work that those guys do and I respect how challenging it can be. I wish with all my heart and all my football heart that more Toronto kids would choose local schools, but I do see the issues surrounding that. I do feel that both programs, and this goes for all, all university football programs. I think it's in their best interest to build the game at the lower levels. I think it's in high school programs' best interest to grow the game at both the high school and the younger levels. I think, the, as, as you mentioned, um, Zach, our game is 
um, you know, I don't want to say in peril, but our game is definitely facing tough times in terms of participation. Participation is growing at the non-contact levels at the younger ages, but it's shrinking at the contact levels once you get into the high school age and up. So if I'm a person whose livelihood relies on having football players coming into my programs in the future, I think it's very important for me to get out there and build the pro build the game at the ages below the age at which I coach. Um, you know, there are lots of opportunities for that sort of programming to happen. I think the more outreach you can do as a university program, the better. I think if universities spent time encouraging their play, a lot of, you know, this is the beauty of it. A lot of university players are the first ones who step up when you put out a call for coaching or for volunteer help. It doesn't matter what football you're doing. If you connect with like a group of players from your local university, a lot of those guys will be there with bells on, right? They love to work with kids and work with the game. Um, but it, it's generally in an unofficial capacity, right? So if you can expand that in an official capacity as a program, the, you know, it really, it, it benefits you in the long run. The more kids you get interacting with your players, spending time on your campus, the more chance you have of getting those kids in the building when they're older, right? And and maybe they end up going somewhere else, but at least you've made that connection, right? Um, personal anecdote, for me, my last year at Downsview, one of my kids uh, mentioned, one of my kids, one of the players mentioned he was on the bus to school. And he had, we got, uh, we got some swag, you know, that year, we got some jackets, some hoodies and stuff. And he mentioned there was like little kids on the bus and they said they went to the public school around the corner. And so they were like, Oh, I want to play for that team. I'm going to play for that team. That's a Downsview team. He he was wearing this hoodie. Right. And I was like, wow, it was my eighth year there. Right. But five years before that, Downsview didn't even have a football team. Right. Um, so to see little kids who lived in the community engaging with my players at the, my high school players was a massive thing for me. Right. Um, and I think any program you're at, that, that's what you got to aim for. You got to get those young kids in the building interested in your connecting, you know, finding a personal connection with your program so that then when they get older, maybe they want to play there. Um, yeah. And that's, that's where I'm at with that, man. And that goes for all football. As you guys know, you're fans of NFL and CFL teams, right? Same deal. So anyways. Um, and just to go back on a note that you were talking about, um, how players, you know, they kind of want to see something being built. Um, and maybe it was different back when you were there, but I know talking to kids now, when I talk about U of T in York and I'll speak bluntly, cause I have no association with those schools. They've been garbage for the last very long time. And kids will say, I don't want to do that. Or a lot of the time, you know, kids don't have. I hate to speak ill of some people, but kids don't have that ability to, you know, be that superstar in high school, go eight and zero every season for four or five years, yep. and then you know go to go to U of T or York, and then yeah, they'll see the field, but go out there and just get beat up, you know, get beat up seventy six to three by Western or something like that. Now, was that a mentality of if you have when you were going to those schools, uh, or is I, that just something I, new as well? I can't tell if you're taking a shot at my playing career. Or... <laughs> 
Oh, I, I wasn't. I, I, uh, man, I don't. I don't know enough uh, about your playing career for that one. But. It's better that way. No, listen, man. Um, I was and and see, look, this is a lot of where my point of view, right? Um, a good friend of mine who's a coach is is Chris Pretoya at Waterloo, right? Chris and I are roughly the same age. We go way back. Um, you know, whenever I got kids that are that are academic kids and that are interested in football, um, he's he's one of the first people I try to reach out to. He's done an amazing job at Waterloo, right? And Chris said to me something that means a lot, right? He, he, you know, gave me a compliment that was very flattering. He said, you know, you're champion for kids in this game who don't necessarily have that person standing up for them. And I think the reason behind that, and that's not to toot my horn, I think that hit home with me because I was that kid. Um, I went to Humberside in, in West, the West End. Um, we were a tier two team. Yeah, I know. It was Western Tech's rival school. Yes, Dakota. Um, Go Huskies. Yeah, that's it, man. I got my <laughs> hockey slash football Fuck jersey it. here. <laughs> um, we were a tier two football team in Toronto. Um, we, we, we put 12 kids in, in the OUA, my whatever back then it was OAC, my grade 13 year. Um, but I remember I went to play Mississauga Warriors. It was the only club team in the area at that point. And I was like, they were like, where, what school are you from? Like, who the hell knows what that school is? And um, I was playing with kids from all these powerhouse programs, like Brampton, Mississauga, and Toronto programs, right? And a lot of those guys went, like our running back was a guy named Kerry Carter, who ended up at Stanford. Um, and, you know, a lot of those guys were like the best of the best back then. And I was like, nobody. And I worked my butt off there. It made me love football. And when I went back to high school, I was like pretty good. I thought I was amazing. I thought I was going to the NFL as a five foot 11, 235 pound defensive end. Right. Cause you know, obviously that was happening, but, um, you know, then I went to university and, and it was a rude awakening. Like I went to York and they were good and they had, they had multiple future CFL players they were competitive and I never dressed. Um, and that was like a humbling experience. It was a learning experience. I had to make a choice as a player. I, I chose to transfer um, more because I wanted to play than because I was upset about anything. I just wanted to play. I, I realized at that point I wasn't going to have a future as a football player after university, but I wanted to play. That's where I found my, my joy in football at the time so i went to u of t um it was local like i lived at home right they were we were terrible we were terrible i was not a good football player as a, as a university level athlete i was you know i knew enough to get by i was very smart about the game physically i really wasn't what i needed to be um we had a couple competitive seasons in our minds but they were really more a couple competitive games so I lived that experience that you're mentioning. Um, and I think that you bring up a good point. It, it, it's the team that's getting their butt kicked in at the university level on the weekend. They're not putting in any less preparation than the team that's kicking their butt in that week, or they shouldn't be. Um, they might not be as talented. They probably aren't, obviously, because they're getting their butt kicked. They might not have the infrastructure. They probably don't. 
they might not have the support. They, again, they probably don't. But it's not like the hours are different. Every team practices. Every team watches film. Every team does whatever else they do during the week. So for you, for you as a player to go to a program where the truth is on Monday or Tuesday when you get your game plan and you look at the rosters or the depth charts and you know that your team cannot compete with the team that you're lined up across from, the amount of heart and desire it takes to still remain part of that program is immense. It's easy to be part of a program that's winning every weekend. We all know that. It's really hard to be part of a program that isn't. And it's even harder if you are a competitive spirit who is working to change that, right? And so I take nothing away from the kids and coaches in those programs because it's not like they want to do poorly. Everyone wants to win. Everyone wants to put in the work and is willing to grind it out, right? But it's the truth of the matter is the support systems in universities are different in every institution. And, you know, whether that's financial, whether that's support, whether that's infrastructure, everything really comes down to money, let's be honest. But, you know, if you got programs like, like Zach went to Guelph, right, and Guelph put in a ton of money into their program in order for them to be nationally competitive, right? There are other schools that, that are not willing to make that financial commitment. They're willing to have a program. They want the best for their kids and their coaches, but that $10 million difference speaks for itself sometimes. Right. And so, you know, it's tough for, it's tough for those kids and those programs. And, you know, as a, as a younger coach, I would, I would sort of place more blame at the feet of the kids and coaches. I, you know, now that I'm a little older, a little more, maybe a little wiser, I think it's more of a infrastructure issue. Um, and, and I don't know necessarily how you fix that. I think that's an institutional decision. And, you know, they, it's not that the schools don't want football, but I always say this, in, I always say that at the high school level, you either have a football team or you have a football program. And the difference is a football team is a bunch of kids who like to play football. A football program is kids who are making an investment year after year to get better and grow and be competitive every single year. And so, you know, one of the differences once you get past high school is money and money is the bottom line. If you give U of T or York or Windsor $10 million budgets, all of a sudden we're probably having a different conversation, right? If you look at Laval, Laval, once they went, I, I don't know what the model or what they call the model, but once the program was independently funded, they went from like an average team to being a nationally dominant program, right? Look at UBC, right? UBC makes a reinvestment in the program about, what is it, 10 years ago? All of a sudden, they're able to compete nationally and they're able to compete for Vanier Cups. So, you know, again, you can't put the place the blame at the feet of any person who's trying their best, but you can look at it from an institutional point of view and say that these schools are making decisions. And now as a coach, I want to make sure that kids are aware. I will never tell a kid not to go to a school. I don't, as long as they're going for the right reasons, but the right reason is not always football. 
and that, that's what you have to keep in mind. 99.9% of university football athletes will never make a paycheck off of football. So you have to figure out why you're going to that school and then look at how football fits into your experience there, first and foremost. Well, you raised some incredible points there. And I love your distinction about having a football team versus a football program. I think that's that's really powerful. Um, now, I imagine one big thing that is going to help grow a lot more programs in the city or any of these university levels is being able to, for lack of a better term, recycle people who have gone through those programs or gone through the football system and have them involved in the sport in some capacity. And Dakota and I have just been doing this Life After Football um, series on the podcast with players who had finished up their career and sort of seeing what they were doing. And a a lot of them have been keeping up in the sport in some Mm -hmm. way or another. But I'm curious on your take on just ways that players who, and as you just said, 99 point, you know, whatever is percent aren't going to make a paycheck off of it. But clearly to to pursue football to the highest level of your ability shows a, lo- a love of the game. Of course. And for so many people, it, when you lose that, it's it's devastating and it, it manifests in a number of ways. So I'm curious what types of ways you would suggest to players who are getting out of the game for whatever reason, ways that they can stay connected with the sport that they love. Right. So, I mean, you interviewed Lawrence Hopper a couple episodes back um hopper i've known hopper since he's in grade nine right um great example of this but um you know there's a guy who whose career playing career kind of ended a couple times because of injury right um obviously stuck with it but he took had to take several seasons off um you know i think i think you have to look at it as do you love the game or not and if you love the game you can't just love playing it um, I mean, I guess you could, maybe that's poorly worded from me, but I think if you love the game and want to stay involved in the game, there are lots of different avenues. And the trick is looking at what your, what your group needs, what, what your, your community needs, right? What your family needs, if you want to look at football as a family. So <clears throat> one thing I mentioned, we talked about before we came on the air, um, everybody who plays football, to a certain, you know, after a certain amount of time, you probably have had an opportunity to coach football. May not have been that serious. Maybe it was with a kid's camp. Maybe it was with like, uh, you know, touch football. Maybe it was with uh, powder puff football, whatever it may be. Um, Coach, go and coach. Go back to your high school. Help out. Um, You know, help out as a position coach. Go to your local community program help out as a as a peewee coach right um one thing one thing my my father always always said this um you know i used to do like martial arts when i was little right and there's lots of different schools for that and you know he always went to we went to the one he went to which was run by a a very elderly uh gentleman who'd been doing it for like many many decades and maybe it wasn't the most um flashy place or anything but he was like look the place you go that's charging you the less, excuse me, charging you the least, um, the chance that they are doing it for the love of the game is, is higher, right? Hmm. Um, so go and give back and give back without any expectation that you're going to receive anything from that. It's not a transaction. You're giving back because the idea is you got something out of the game. 
So you're giving back to the game um, because you got enjoyment or joy out of playing the game or being part of the game. So go get back, go find those kids who are a peewee team that hasn't won a game in three years or that has 15 kids and, and work your butt off and show them how, how fun the game can be. Right. And maybe it's the, you know, uh, look at the peewees or the pikes or the atoms or those seven year olds playing five minutes after the game, whether they win or lose, if they're eating an ice cream cone or having a pizza slice, they're happy. Right. And, and, and embrace that. Um, you know, and, and then understand that programs don't only need coaches, football players and football teams don't only need football trainers. Right. So as a coach, we're a trainer, you know, kids don't only need to learn the game, but they need people who can support their learning of the game. So don't be afraid, like be an administrator, be a person who helps run a team social media account, be guys that make podcasts about university sports or about high school. Like, you know, I know you guys started this as a hobby and I know, you know, you, you it's still kind of a, a thing that you're pursuing your passion as much as anything. It's incredibly empowering to the players to see themselves on your podcasts and on your social media accounts. You know, they feel good. I remember when I was a player and the only thing that was ever written about us in the Toronto star was how terrible we were. And I could still tell you the sports writers names and some of them still work for them. Um, you know, and it was just like how bad we are, how we should, we don't deserve to be on the field. And you know what, maybe that was true. But, you know, as a 20-year-old, seeing that as the only publicity you're getting, it, not only is it emasculating, but it makes you just get this resentment on you, right? You just resent everyone who has something to say about how poorly you're doing. And, you know, the, again, the 20-year-old kid doesn't deserve that. Neither does that 12-year-old that's playing peewee football for some team that isn't doing so well because only their friend's dad is the only coach, right? Or the team manager doesn't know how to you know, help them fit their equipment or what have you. Right. Um, so go and get back. And I think both you guys, like, again, I'm only 40. I just want to put, make sure that's clear. I'm 40, but I know Dakota's high, the guys who coached Dakota in high school were my former players and they went and gave back so they could coach. So other people could learn. Uh, Zach, I know your dad was the photographer for the Metro Wildcats for years. Right. Um, you know, and so he went and gave back, you were involved of course, but I, those kids love seeing their pictures, right? Like I remember when Chuck Richardson and your dad were like taking pictures, thousands of pictures at games and, and Chuck would send them to us. And I still have some of those pictures on my laptop of like the kids from back then and the teams and stuff. So there's more than one way to give back, but the important thing is that you do give back because if you go and finish your playing career and then you're one person, right? And then you go and you give back to two more people. It's that old each one teach one thing, right? Just like, unfortunately, coronavirus right now, there's an R not effect of giving back. You're going to infect more people with the virus of loving football. This is a terrible analogy, by the way. But you're going to give more people that joy and then hopefully they'll be able to do that and pay that forward, right? Um, and that was hugely powerful for me. I was a, I was a varsity O-line coach, you know, Etobicoke, we kind of realized we needed a new direction. 
I ended up being the president of the Etobicoke Eagles. Um, I was 26 and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And it took me years to figure it out, but you know, I took on that job. And again, this is like an old lineman's mentality. You take on the job. No one else really wants to do. Right. Uh, Zach, you played center. I played center. I was, you know why I played center? Cause one time in practice, our old line coach was like, who can snap? And I was like the eighth old lineman. No one else put their hands up. I was like, I'll snap. And then I ended up starting. So I was like, you know, like I'll, I'll do the job. No one else wants to, cause I'm going to get on the field. Same idea. Do the job that no one else wants to do it so well that you become invaluable at it. And then all of a sudden they're going to wake up one day and say, who, you know, why didn't this, what do we do without this person? Right. And, and your programs and the game and the kids who participate in them will be better off at the end of the day. Well, I mean, that's just brilliant advice for anyone in any walk of life. And obviously for this being football centric, um, I think we can all resonate with how those ideas and uh, uh, how those ideas um, do create success. Um, so I think for anyone listening, uh, <laughs> you know, please heed those words and hopefully we'll be in an environment soon enough where we can all start giving back in in the ways that we're all used to yeah. to the sport of football. Um, but Coach Hoff. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm sure we could probably keep this going for hours on end and maybe we'll have to do a part two um, another time coming up um, because just it's it, the, the passion for football in Toronto is, is so clear speaking with you. Um, and I just think it's it's so important for for the future of this game in Toronto, which, as you said, you know, might not be in peril or anything like that. But there, there's some red flags up. So whatever we can all do to make sure it keeps on not just surviving, but growing, um, I think is is incredible. So thank you again. Thanks for having me, guys. And, and yeah, there's about what, is, what are we now? We're, we're almost at Halloween. So there's like two months of pent up post-practice talks <laughs> man I'm, I'm, we're all bouncing off the walls itching to get back on the field right so thank you guys for what you're doing man really appreciate it uh, I love, you didn't get a lot of Hoff's hot takes right here but maybe another time we'll work on that and uh, keep up the good work gentlemen appreciate it thank you coach alright <laughs>